Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. Reading through those sermons by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the uh, Victorian Baptist preacher, you can find what we're reading at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter or through the www.mediagratii.org slash podcasts page where you can find From the Heart of Spurgeon and follow along with us. Each week it's a sermon a day, more or less, and this week we're in sermons 423 to 429, and our featured sermon for this week is actually the first sermon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 8, and it's a psalm for the new year. Now, confusingly, uh, it's not a psalm psalm. It's a psalm in the more general sense of a song. The text is 2 Peter 3 and verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. It was preached as the uh, first sermon of January 1862. Sunday morning, the 5th of January, it was preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. Spurgeon, as he so often does, is drawing on the best of the past in handling this text, something you might find from time to time if you uh, are studying out a particular passage of God's Word and maybe you read a Puritan treatment of that and then you read Spurgeon is you'll see how often Spurgeon relies upon those Puritan treatments to give him ideas, uh, sometimes structures and organisations. Now, in the opening of this sermon, he refers to uh, a substantial Puritan treatment of Second Peter by a man called Thomas Adams. And I happen to have a copy of that uh, in front of me at the moment. I've dug that out of the shelves. And uh, he says that, Uh, he might divide the text as good old Adams does. This is Adams' comment. We read of two trumpets which Moses was commanded to make of silver, Numbers 10 and verse 2. So we have here two trumpets, one sounding from heaven to earth, grow in grace, the other resounding from the earth to heaven, to Jesus be glory. The former soundeth forth a point of theology, the latter a point of doxology. The sound from heaven is a point of theology or divinity summoning us to an increase of grace. The sound from earth is a point of doxology or thanksgiving returning to God, praise and glory. Now Spurgeon obviously then is relying on these kinds of treatments, uh, not just Adams but others like him, to give him his understanding and his sense of what this text means in dependence upon the Holy Spirit for illumination in his own heart. And he takes the the same natural divisions. And his uh, division is that there's a divine injunction with a special direction and a grateful doxology with a suggestive conclusion. Uh, so he's going along the same basic track as Thomas Adams, but this is, this is the way that he himself is handling it. So then, a divine injunction or command with a special direction, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. What then does it mean to grow in grace? Well, we've been quickened by grace. We are alive, says the preacher. We, we have that in us which could not have come from us. God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, has made us alive together with him, and you can only grow once you are alive. 
And when you are alive, you should grow in all the graces which belong to that new life which is in Christ Jesus. And so Spurgeon begins with faith and love and hope and adds into that typical uh, triumvirate humility also. Grow in that root grace of faith. Let it increase in extent, believing more truth, in firmness, getting a tighter grip of every truth, in constancy, not feeble or wavering, not tossed about with every wind. Let your faith daily increase in simplicity, resting more fully and more entirely and more completely upon the finished work of your Lord Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, we've seen how Spurgeon takes the division that Thomas Adams brings and works from that. Someone could preach a sermon on the growing faith and say, increase in extent, increase in firmness, increase in constancy, increase in simplicity. That would be, uh, there are exhortations elsewhere in the scripture concerning the need to, to grow in the grace of faith, that that could be a wonderful way of handling it. And so you see how these uh, kinds of readings spur our minds and stir our hearts to think along the kinds of tracks that these men's minds have gone down before us. See to it that your love also grows, delighting in Christ himself and his people. Pray that you might grow in hope, that you'd look more eagerly and expectantly to the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Ask that you may grow in humility until you can say, I am less than the least of all the saints, that you may grow in consecration till you can cry, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, that you may grow in contentment that you, till you can feel, in whatever state I am, I have learned to be content. And so you've got faith and hope <coughs> and love, and you've also got added in there humility and consecration and contentment. Here's Spurgeon's summary. In fine, if there be any virtue, that is in, in conclusion or uh, to bring it all together, if there be any praise, if there be anything that is lovely and of good repute, if there be anything that increase, can increase your usefulness, that can add to your happiness, that can make you more serviceable to man and more glorious towards God, grow in it, for you have not yet attained, neither are you yet already perfected. Now, so far, so straightforward. Actually, Spurgeon in this sermon isn't at his polished best in terms of the way that he structures it. You've got that very plain, very simple, very straightforward, overarching division of the divine injunction and the grateful doxology, but within that, Spurgeon seems to be shooting in a number of different directions. It's, it's almost as if there's, there's too much bubbling up in his mind as he's, as he's preaching. So he now begins to illustrate this growth, and he's drawing on illustrations from the Word of God. First of all, he compares believers to trees of the Lord's right-hand planting, and he says, grow as a tree grows. Pray that this year you might grow downward and upward and to either side and in fruitfulness. And so here again, he's developing this imagery. There's a vividness to this, this illustrative kind of preaching brings before your eyes things that are familiar, hopefully at least in some measure, things that are vivid, things that are lively. 
You can see the tree. It grows down. The roots go down, rooted in humility. You grow upward, the top shoot of your love toward heaven. You grow out on either side, extending your holy influence as far as God gives opportunities. And you grow in fruitfulness, bringing forth more glory to God than you have done before. Give to this congregation, he cries out, more of the fruits of penitence for sin, of faith in the great sacrifice, of love to Jesus, of zeal for the conversion of souls. This is to grow in grace, to root downward, to shoot upward, to extend your influences like far-reaching branches, and to bring forth fruit unto the Lord's glory. Again, where you find that illustration in Scripture, that might provide you with a, a sermon outline uh, of your own. But we're going to borrow another figure from Scripture, he says, because it's not just trees, we're also compared to children, and so we should grow as the young do, nourished by unadulterated milk, and growing into a, that beautiful proportion in every part. Not a vigorous ju judgment yoked with a cold heart, not a clear eye with a withered hand. It doesn't look good when a giant's head rides on a dwarf's shoulders. Virtue nourished at the expense of others is a fattened cannibal fed upon the flesh and blood of its murdered kinsmen, and it ill becomes a Christian to harbour such a monster. So here now Spurgeon is, is using the imagery of a complete, proportionate, balanced development. Why should we grow in grace? For what purpose? Well, not to grow in grace is a mark of unhealthiness. It's usually a sign not just of unhealthiness, but deformity, if your, your limbs are not in their proper place and proportion. Indeed, it could even be a sign of death. If there's no progress at all, if there's no vitality in that absolute sense, then perhaps we should be concluding that there is no real life in us at all. After all, if you must be alive in order to grow it's at least reasonable to presume that in the absence of any growth, maybe there is no life at all. So advance in grace then, says Spurgeon, because not to progress augurs, promises, points to many evil things and may teach that worst of all things, the want of spiritual life. Grow in grace because, beloved, to increase in grace is the only pathway to enduring nobility." But it's not only nobility, it's also happiness. The Christian who doesn't know more of his Lord and become more like him knows less of his Lord and becomes less like him. Unless you use these graces, they will wither. Unless you employ these gifts, they will drift away. So let us live, says Spurgeon, that in our day and in after days the world may be the better and Christ's church the more prosperous for our having lived. For this reason, if for no other, let us grow in grace. And he wants to fire the people then, he says, with some hallowed ambition today. He wants them to begin to live. And, and every, every true preacher, I think, knows this longing. When you're preaching this kind of exhortation, when you're, you're preaching with this kind of passion, with this kind of appetite, with this kind of expectation, you want to see God's people stirred up and energized. You want to see people fired with hallowed ambition. There's nothing, nothing more painful, more distressing than to call God's people to holy endeavour and to see a congregation essentially shrug their shoulders and go, hmm, well, there was another sermon, wasn't there? 
No, the, the whole point of such a ministry as this is to move men and women by the grace of God, to stir them up to love and to good works. And so he says, remember that in this, there's a, a, this uh, inquiry also, how then do you grow, grow in grace? Well, you've got to ask God. He who gave you grace must give you more of it. If you received it from him, then he must be the one who increases it in you. There then is the divine exhortation. But, says Spurgeon, you can perceive that it contains a special injunction. And upon that, we must pause a moment. We need to stop and and think about what this means, this uh, authoritative demand, this uh, particular call to us that you're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So Spurgeon here is more or less just walking through and working through his text. And while he's got that uh, very neat, overarching two-part structure, nevertheless, he's uh, trying to cover all the bases underneath that overarching organisation. And so he's praying that this year we may know more of Christ in his divine nature and in his human relationship to us, in his finished work, in his death, in his resurrection, in his present glorious intercession, and in his future royal advent. To know more of Christ in his work is, I think, a blessed means of enabling us to work more for Christ. We must also study to know more of Christ in his character, not just in his work, but in that divine compound of every perfection, faith, zeal, deference to his Father's will, courage, meekness, and love. The lion of the tribe of Judah was nevertheless the man upon whom the dove descended in the waters of baptism. So that full-orbed and well-balanced character. No Christ in his work, no Christ in his character, no Christ in his whole person. A better acquaintance with the crucified man. No him, says Spurgeon. Not, not, not just know about him, but know him. This is the true growth, says Spurgeon. All other growth which does not lead us to increase in the knowledge of Christ is just the puffing up of the flesh and not the building up of the Spirit. And again he asks, why? Why would you want to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ? And he says, if you really need to know the answer to that question, then you don't actually know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you know him and when you love him, your cry is always nearer, nearer, nearer. Absence from Christ is hell. Presence with Christ is heaven. And as we get nearer to him, our heaven becomes more heavenly and we enjoy it more and feel more that it is of God. We want to know Christ also as Lord. All hail thou crucified one, cries the preacher. We acknowledge thee as saviour also. Help us to rejoice in thy salvation and to feel the plenitude of that salvation in all and every part of spirit, soul and body being wholly saved by thee. Now I hope, uh, even if I've not communicated it well, you get a sense of that bubbling up. Uh, there's, there's effectively about five sermons already so far in this one sermon. And you might say, it's not very neat, it's not very orderly, it's not very polished, but brothers and sisters, it is warm and it is earnest. It is preached from the heart to the heart. And perhaps at times we're a little bit concerned about polish 
and about balance and about structure to the exclusion of the kind of spiritual warmth that actually makes a sermon something more than a mere talk or a simple address or a homily of some kind. Now, here Spurgeon is not uh, as neat as he would be, and bear in mind Spurgeon is a man who would emphasise good structure in a sermon. He actually uses a little illustration from his childhood when he was sent shopping and uh, he had to buy for his mother I, it was something like there was rice and there was sugar and there was mustard. And on his way home, uh, with the, the rice and the sugar and the mustard in these uh, little parcels in his in his basket, he saw a fox hunt across the fields. And being a typical boy, he started following the, the horses uh, to see what was going on. And he was climbing over hedges and uh, rolling through ditches and trying to do what he could ever whatever he could to keep up. And when he finally uh, caught up and then uh, got home, he found that the parcels in his basket had all come loose and what he had was a, a sugary, mustardy, ricey mess. And from that point on, he says he realised the importance of wrapping up the separate things in your basket very tightly and distinctly. And that's one of the reasons why he always tries to have those clear divisions in his sermon. Well, you might say there's a bit of rice and a bit of mustard and a bit of sugar in this sermon so far, uh, except that whatever it is he's mixing here, the flavour of the stuff is fantastic. There is, there's a little bit of heat to the mustard, there's a lot of the sweetness of the sugar, there's the substance of the rice. Um, it's maybe not as well ordered as you might have wished, but certainly uh, he's, he's pressing this upon us. And now he comes back to the, the clear level, or the clearest level, because you had, first of all, that uh, divine uh, commandment uh, with its specific element to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, a divine injunction with a special direction. And now the second main element, the grateful thanksgiving with a most suggestive termination. And what's interesting is that Spurgeon's changing his language as he goes. And I, I actually wonder if perhaps he's looking at his congregation and saying, why am I talking about a divine injunction with a special direction and a grateful doxology with a suggestive conclusion? Uh, it's, it's not the simplest of language. Uh, we know where he's going once he starts explaining it, but it's, he's already simplifying it here. A grateful thanksgiving with a most suggestive termination or ending. Praise, he says, is never out of season, and it's no interruption to interrupt any engagement in order to laud and magnify our God. To him be glory. And now we're back into that stepping through the text. Let every heart, he says, joyously feel this doxology. To him, the God that made the heavens and the earth, without whom was not anything made, to him who in his infinite compassion became the surety of the covenant, to him who became a babe of a span long, to him who was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, to him who on the bloody tree poured out his heart's life that he might redeem his people, to him who said, I thirst and it is finished, to him whose lifeless body slumbered in the grave, to him be glory to him that burst the bonds of death, to him who ascended on high and led captivity captive, to him who sits at the right hand of the Father and who shall soon come to be our judge, to him be glory. And again, here's this great eruption of affection toward God and Christ in Spurgeon's heart and from his lips. 
But, says Spurgeon, the apostle adds, not just to him be glory generally, but to him be glory now. Do not postpone the day of his triumph. Do not put off the hour of his coronation. Now, now, says the preacher. And and you begin again to feel the intensity and the momentum of this sermon. Now, now, says Spurgeon, and forever. Don't put off this effort. Do not uh, leave it until later, but begin now and continue forever. Time shall grow old and die. Eternity, your unnumbered years, shall speed their everlasting course. But forever, 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 to Christ be glory. He is a priest forever. He is a king forever. He is the one who ought to be praised forever. The glory of the cross cannot be eclipsed. The luster of the grave and its resurrection must never be dimmed. Oh, my beloved brothers, says Spurgeon, my spirit begins to feel the ardour of the immortals. I would anticipate the songs of heaven. Can you hear now the preacher's spirit uh, being drawn in and drawn up? He has caught the very sense and spirit of what he has been preaching. This is having an impact upon him in the very act of preaching. My tongue, he says, had it but celestial liberty, would begin even now to join those thrice melodious sonnets sung by flaming tongues above. O Jesus, thou shalt be praised forever. It's beautiful how often, and he's done it here now, Spurgeon breaks out away from preaching to the congregation to speaking directly to his Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. There's a a sense of, of eternal and personal reality in what Spurgeon is dealing with. Now, he says, there's a conclusion to this of the most suggestive kind. Amen. And he says, I want to work this amen out, not as a matter of doctrine, but as a matter of blessed transport or or lifting up. So give me, he says, your hearts again. It's interesting that at this point now, Spurgeon goes back to Thomas Adams. I actually wonder, and you can check this for yourself if you can find uh, a copy of Adams on Second Peter, I actually wonder if part of the problem is that he's just read these 30, 40 pages, whatever, of Thomas Adams, yes, 30-odd pages, double columns on, uh, on these two verses, and has just been so delighted by it that he's tried to pack it all into one of his own sermons. And this this last Uh, element here, this amen, this is very much from Adam's again, because this amen uh, means then these four things. It's the desire of the heart. It's the affirmation of faith. It's the joy of the heart. And it's the amen of resolution. And this is where Spurgeon is now having preached to the people. He's trying to call the people to himself. And uh, it's, it's fascinating now how he does that by not allowing the congregation to sit there passively. Now, I'm not saying that we should all, if we are preachers, copy this. I'm not saying that we should uh, do this as a, a kind of a gimmick. But Spurgeon, remember, is not writing here. He is speaking. He is preaching the word of God to a living congregation. This is eyeball to eyeball stuff. And he's now challenging the people who've heard him explain the text, whether or not they can respond from the depths of their being to what the preacher is saying, what the word of God is saying. 
And so he challenges the congregation along each of these lines. Does your heart then, in terms of its desire, long? Does it pant? Does it thirst? Does it groan and cry out after Christ so that you can say, every time you bend your knee, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Can you say that, says Spurgeon? If you can, then do it honestly while I repeat the doxology, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And there's this little square bracket now in the record of this sermon. The congregation very heartily aloud said, Amen. So be it, Lord, replies replies the preacher. You can hear your church as we speak thus. What about the affirmation of our faith? We can only say amen to that which we really believe to be true. We are confirming that this is what we are persuaded of. Do you believe it, says Spurgeon? Do you believe that the the glory will belong to God in Christ Jesus, the glory of heaven and glory upon earth, both from his enemies as they bow before him and the church as it comes into his presence? And the congregation again responds, Amen. And Spurgeon, there's a, there's a little bit of a dig here. Lord, you hear it, though it's a feebler cry than before, for there are more who can desire it than there are who can believe it. It's you know, Again, there's this very intimate back and forth. There's a, a mutuality in this relationship. The preacher and the hearers are locked together in this sermon. A third meaning to this, amen, the joy of the heart. If I bring forth the king to you, says Spurgeon, if I bring him before the eyes of your faith today, I'm proclaiming him king again. Do you desire him to be king? Do you rejoice in his reign? Then say amen. Now this again is not that uh, sort of fairly crash. Do I hear an amen sort of thing that, that often comes up? A preacher begging for affirmation. No, this is a, a preacher who is calling for the saints to respond to the truth. He doesn't want them to tell him that he's telling them good things and that they're liking it. He wants them to respond to the preaching of God's word and to declare to the God of heaven that it is their joy that God is God and his son, the Lord Christ, is crowned upon the throne. Amen then, Lord, says the preacher. Be king in the midst of all. And the last and very solemn point, and our men of resolution. It means, says Spurgeon, I in the name of God solemnly pledge myself that in his strength I will seek to make it so. To him be glory both now and forever. Now he says, and he's not trying to then to whip them into a fervour. You notice how he structures this. I'm not going to want you to say amen to this aloud but I pause that you may say it silently in your own souls by and by. I walked last week through the long galleries which vanity has dedicated to all the glories of France. You pass through room after room where especially you see the triumphs of Napoleon in writhing bodies and in the blood and vapour and smoke. He's he's been over to, to Paris. Surely, he says, as you walk through the pages of Scripture, you walk through a much more marvellous picture gallery in which you see the glories of Christ. In the scriptures, you have the memorials of the honours of Christ. 
what trophies our Saviour has to make him glorious, he says, both now and forever. Trophies of living hearts that love him, of immortal spirits who find their heaven in gazing upon his beauties. What must the glories of Christ be forever when you and I and all the ten thousand millions he has bought with his blood shall be in heaven? And so he's lifting us up now toward the eternal glories that lie ahead. He says, This is eight years now of my ministry among you concluded. Seven years of printed sermons are now before the public. We're into the eighth year of preaching that is printed in the way that we're reading. He says, Have we been glorifying God? How much of blessedness God has caused to pass through our mind. How much he has been pleased to own his word. We cannot fully measure, but we know that he has been with us in deed and in truth. And now we begin this year. May the Lord make it so that all the past shall seem to be as nothing compared with that which is to come. And so he says, I want you to enter in to this. Now, we're not at the beginning of a year, at least as I record this and, and as you perhaps listen to it, but it's at least maybe the beginning of a day, the beginning of a week. There is going to be, if God spares us, a tomorrow. Let's make this the first day of our determination, our resolution, that if we believe that there will be glory to God in Christ, both now and forever, that we will live to that end. We may not see all the blessings that Spurgeon saw. We may not obtain all the mercies that he enjoyed. We may not see the progress of the gospel that he was privileged to see. But all that we have spoken is no less true of us than it was of him and the people to whom he then preached. So let me conclude with Spurgeon. Once I remind you that God willing, next week we'll be reading sermons 430 to 436 and an absolute doozy of a sermon. Uh, 433 is our featured sermon, Life in Earnest. Brothers and sisters, if you think that Spurgeon has got in amongst you on this one and has dealt with your heart in this sermon, then I simply tell you, in a righteous sense, brace yourself for the, the exhortation that is to come. But until then, and if the Lord does spare us, I bless you, my brothers and sisters, says the preacher, in the name of the Lord. And commencing this year, I beg again for renewed tokens of your affection by a renewal of your prayers. And on my part, I only trust that it may be mine through this year, and long as I live, to be giving my Amen to that doxology. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information, and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.